Hey, hey, it's a Friday, and we are looking at what should be a glorious fall weekend in Northeast Ohio. We'll be talking a little bit about the weather and how unusual it is to get this kind of weekend this late into the year. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Atasi, and Laura Johnston to wrap up the week. Some pretty good stuff to talk about today. Let's dive in. What is Ohio Auditor Keith Faber thinking? He's running for re-election, and he told a Tea Party gathering that the Cuyahoga County Board of Elections could tamper with elections in other states. Laura, what is he talking about? I'm I'm not exactly sure he knows what he's talking about, but this story is from the Ohio Capital Journal, and it is jaw-dropping. Faber is literally making things up in a sinister, speculative scenario that targets the Cuyahoga Board of Elections. And he was talking to this Tea Party group in Westerville. They asked if he audited the elections. He doesn't. That's the Secretary of State's job. And he said it was unlikely that widespread fraud occurs in Ohio elections. But then he spun this crazy scenario about how Cuyahoga County, which is obviously one of the most democratic, diverse counties in the state, could, if it wanted to, possibly perpetrate voter fraud in another state by using special elections paper to give it to them. It's ludicrous. There's no bearing in reality. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the most shameful things an Ohio politician has done this year. And man, (laughs) these are the people that defied the Constitution on gerrymandering, including him. But I'm astounded. This guy has been cruising along in his reelection battle, probably to a certain victory. And then he drops this outrageous nonsense with nothing to base it on. The Cuyahoga County Board of Elections doesn't even print its own ballots. Right. We don't have paper. We contract it. We have extra. If we have extra ballots, then we take care of that. But yeah, they can't just give paper away. It's blatant pandering. And he's talking to his base. Can I can I quote him? Because it just seems so absurd. There was nothing to say that the Cuyahoga County Board of Elections, who ordered a million sheets of paper, didn't somehow quietly drop off 50,000 of them over here in another state because the paper is from the same machine to machine and state to state. So we started asking these questions. And I talked to a number of people at local boards of elections and said, if you're going to cheat, what would you do? And so we started looking at that. It's like, it is just cuckoo. Yeah, well, it's a lie. I mean, he is telling people a lie that, you know, they're probably Fox News watchers and they'll probably believe anything they hear from somebody in an authority position because they love authoritarianism. I don't get it, though. He has made himself a lightning rod. I mean, if you're going to vote for the auditor, think about this. He is telling outright lies about Cuyahoga County Board of Elections, trying to undermine faith in elections, which is what you do if you're an authoritarian, kill off what people think of their institutions. This is just one of the most shameful things done. I salute the Ohio Capital Journal for finding it and and grateful that they allow us to run their stuff. Yeah. It's the nonprofit newsroom in Columbus, and they do some really good work. And we the, actually just hired one of their reporters. Jake uh, Jake Zuckerman is now part of our team, and he's he's done great work on HB6. So. And, and Jake is going to be watching the Facebook Live today that the Cuyahoga County Board of Elections is doing to basically refute these claims. I mean, that's not what their press release said, but you have to kind of read into it that they're going to talk about how safe the elections are. But I mean, come on, all the problems we've had in this country, people believe that Trump was elected president. Like, 
you do not need to spew more falsehoods. It's ridiculous. And when they we went, or sorry, when the Capitol Journal went back and asked the communication staff in Faber's office, they didn't address the questions. They didn't have anything to back it up. And it's just absurd. I, I just, I so wish, disappointing. I wish the Secretary of State, Frank LaRose, and the Governor, Mike DeWine, would come out and condemn this kind of thing. Because we really should not be undermining Ohioans' faith in their elections. LaRose is trying to have it both ways, but he has boasted repeatedly about how safe and secure our elections are. We're less than three weeks away from Election Day, and a top elected Ohio official is is putting out sheer nonsense to undermine people's faith in the election system. Shameful, shameful. I really, I, I think this is probably the most shameful thing in Ohio and in an elected <laughs> office has done this year. Really? With and all man, the redistricting? I mean, obviously, yeah, well, Keith Faber was, well, part, was of part of that. He was part of that, yeah. Yeah, he was part of that. He's really a bad guy. I mean, we're going to have to, we're going to do an endorsement from our editorial board soon. This is going to have to figure into You wonder it. if he's thought, oh, I'm just talking to the base. Nobody else is going to pick this up, right? But nothing is secret. Everything is recorded. Yeah, it's really bad. It's today in Ohio. How often does it happen that Ohio's top court makes a ruling about Cedar Point and its customers? They did that Thursday. Layla, what's this case about? What's the ruling? And does this affect anybody on this podcast, maybe? Maybe it does. <laughs> the Supreme Court ruled against a Mayfield Heights season ticket holder who sued the park two years ago, claiming breach of contract. And the court determined that Cedar Point does not have to refund money to season pass holders who weren't happy with how the park handled the pandemic-shortened season in 2020. The court ruled that the park had the right to adjust operating dates and hours without issuing refunds. And they noted that Cedar Point's terms and conditions allowed the park to adjust hours and dates for weather or other conditions. Those other conditions include a state-mandated shutdown in the spring of 2020 for the pandemic, according to the court. So Cedar Point didn't open until July 9th in 2020 because of those shutdowns. And on, on account of that, they extended the use of the season tickets through 2021, but that didn't satisfy some folks, including the woman who sued. So, uh, you know, this is a case that's similar to one that was filed in 2020 in Toledo, which argued in, in district U.S. District Court, arguing that Cedar Fair's refusal to issue refunds violated Ohio's Consumer Sales Practices Act. That case involves a plaintiff from Washington State who was a season pass holder at Knott's Berry Farm, a Cedar Fair park in Southern California that didn't open at all in 2020. Um, I mean, as... So I am one of the two million season ticket holders who would have been affected by this. Uh -huh. if they... <laughs> I knew we had one, and me yes. too, Layla. Yeah. Oh, I knew really? We had them. Yeah. yeah. So you, so you bought the, you bought the gold pass. I bought the gold in pass the... in 2019. Yeah. And went like twice that season, and then you know you had it for the whole next season. But honestly, they extended it for a year, right? They said yeah. you could use it for all of 2021, and they didn't even have cutback hours. I mean, we. We've talked a lot. They had staffing shortages, so they had shorter hours, but it wasn't COVID related. And I was quite happy with giving me a whole nother season for my I family. I was too. I was too. I thought okay. that was All a right. cool, that was a good resolution to that. It, in my but opinion. they should have given the option. I don't think yeah. many people would have taken it, but they should have made it available. I mean, they could have made it difficult. Like you have to go fill out this form and send us a receipt and blah, blah, blah. But they should have offered it. I mean, I, I really found the logic of this ruling to be a little bit cuckoo. I mean, it, 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 say you had contracted to buy a car and in the pandemic, 
the the supply chain issue that you never got your car would would the down payment not come back to you and you paid for something conditions changed you didn't get it and they hitched the whole decision on well the ticket says on the back the agreement says they can change their terms well could they've just changed the terms and said yeah you bought the ticket but we're closing the gates to you i mean where does that change of terms end uh, i get it there was an emergency everything was done to shut it down and they tried to make it right but you, to change the terms so dramatically where you don't get what you pay for, I thought this suit would be victorious. And I'm a little bit surprised by the logic in turning it down. Yeah. And I don't think there would have been that many people seeking the refund given, given the extension. I mean, look how popular. I mean, Cedar Point was slammed with those gold passes being extended to 2021. The park was just crushed with, with uh, uh, you know, park goers. So I, I just... I don't think there would have been that many people who would have tried to, I mean, you could have put a cap on it, like, all right, at some point, you can only seek a refund up until a certain point, and then you're out of luck if you haven't, you know, tried to receive one by then. You know, that would have been fair. You can't, like, enjoy your season pass and then try to get a refund, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I, and I and I think you're right. If they had made the offer, hey, you can have another year added to it when we expect to be fully open, or we'll give you a partial refund based on your usage. Most people would have taken it, but I they they, they kind of mistreated their customers here. Anyway, interesting ruling from the Supreme Court. It's today in Ohio. The Supreme Court made another ruling on a Northeast Ohio traction in an unusual case involving deed restrictions set by Jephthah Wade himself, the guy whose family Wade Oval is named for. Lisa, I've been giving you the most complicated stories to tell all week long, and we're going to do it again. I love this story. And again, I'm a little bit surprised by how the ruling came down. Yeah, the Ohio Supreme Court, in a unanimous opinion, ruled that the Cleveland Botanical Gardens did not violate the 1882 deed on the 73-acre Wade Park by regulating hours, charging admission, and building an underground parking garage. Um, They found that... uh, They were in compliance with the deed terms set by Jephthah Wade when he donated the land to the city of Cleveland. He wanted the park to be, quote, open at all times to the public, and it would revert back to the errors if it was not used for public purposes. So in her lead opinion, uh, Justice Jennifer Bruner said the errors interpretation of the deed would basically suspend the realities of operating a park and their right to control and it was ended by the Marketable Title Act, which is kind of complicated to explain, but it, it rules over transaction disputes of real estate. But the heirs have the right to regain control of if the deed restrictions are violated, although I think they've already been violated, just my opinion. But the Botanical Garden was established in the 1930s. And then in the 1960s, the city leased them more property, but they said they couldn't close off the area or charge admission at the time. And then in 1971, the city leased Wade Oval to University Circle. University Circle subleased some of that Wade Oval land to the Botanical Garden for an underground parking garage that was built in 2001. They later asked the city to change the, uh, later asked the city if they could charge admission and they were allowed to, but not all heirs agreed to this agreement. 
So in 2013, the Botanical Garden went to uh, Common Police Court, and Common Police Court said it was okay for them to charge admission. The heirs should have filed notice to preserve their interest in the land, but the heirs appealed to the 8th District Court of Appeals, which upheld the garden's actions, but found that the Marketable Title Act does not end the rights to retake possession. So there you have it. So <laughs> I, I, I just, Jephthah Wade put deed restrictions on saying, I want this land forever accessible, open around the clock for free. And it's not. I mean, mm-hmm. so I, I just don't see how you can say as the Supreme Court that this is okay. This this violates the terms by which he gave this land to Cleveland. And you could say times have changed and we've passed some laws, but a deed restriction is a deed restriction. It, it said this should be open and free. So I, I was stunned by the ruling. I, when this case first came up, and it's been years now since it was filed, I thought they're going to win, that, that mm-hmm. you can't charge people to go into that and they're going to have to figure out another funding model. But Supreme Court disagrees. They're the I, lawyers. They must know what they're talking about, and right? A, and a, and a, go ahead. Go ahead, Lisa. No, I was just going to say that not all the heirs agreed to the, you know, the fact, you know, that about charging admission. So the way the heirs of the Wade family couldn't agree among themselves, and maybe that was part of the problem. Laura? I just, first of all, love the name Jephthah. I think we need to bring that back. Second, <laughs> this makes me wonder about Calhoun Park in Bay, uh, Bay Village, because I mean, Layla obviously knows she lives there. You can't use that for any organized activities on Sundays, so they can't open Ew. their pool on Sundays, it's right? So it's like, I wonder if this has any implications for other deed restrictions in parks elsewhere. I, I just can't see how you can throw the deed restriction out the window. Jephthah Wade had an idea. He wanted people to use this land, and that's why he donated it. And it was with some rules, and now the rules aren't the same. And the opinion says, did say that they have the right to, you know, regain control of that land if the deed restrictions are violated, but they've... So what what constitutes a violation now? If you can rope off some of it, charge admission, and build a parking garage, what <laughs> what breaks the deed restrictions? Yeah, I, an odd one. Two two very strange rulings from the Ohio Supreme Court. It's today in Ohio. Many people don't realize this, but the Cuyahoga County Jail is actually two jails, one built in the 70s and the other in the 1990s. As part of the planning for a new jail today, county officials looked a few years back at whether they might be able to make use of the newer jail to reduce the size of the one they have to build. Layla, I learned something from this story. I didn't know. I thought it was a four-story jail, but the story says it's seven, which hmm. I, I think we've reported previously was four. Anyway, what is the upshot of the discussion from a few years back before we bring it forward? Yeah, so so back a few years in this process of trying to decide how to achieve a better jail, prosecutor Mike O'Malley and common pleas judge Brendan Sheehan both of whom serve on the executive steering committee that's been guiding this process, they threw on the table that maybe the the county could salvage part of the existing structure, specifically that they were talking about that Jail 2, which is the newer of two jail towers on the Justice Center complex downtown. Jail 2 was built in 1995. Jail 1 was built in 1976. So Jail 2 had potential 
that they thought should be explored. It it needs a new roof, interior renovations, and a bunch of other stuff. Almost a decade ago, a consultant identified that it needed $15 million in upgrades over a 12-year span to replace things like elevators and to preserve the outside shell and replace a lot of mechanical equipment like HVAC. Most of that still needs to be done, but it can be. The, the jail's current floor plan would require changes to meet code and state standards and make space for other functions to make it self-sufficient, like like central booking, laundry, medical offices, and commissary, which could reduce bed space that would have to be made up somewhere else. But there is a way forward. You could figure that stuff out. The idea was that you could use jail to perhaps to house you know defendants who were awaiting trial and then build some supplemental facility elsewhere to house the rest of the inmate population. But back in 2020, the steering committee's consultant who was doing this analysis, DLR Group, estimated that the total cost of renovating and updating Jail 2 would be about you know, $53 million. And that didn't take into account how much more the county would pay in duplicating staffing and services. They would need two kitchens, one at the supplemental building and one at jail too, two laundry rooms, medical facilities, visitation, things like that. And they need to factor in transportation costs between jail two and the supplemental facility. Also, they determined that jail two's capacity could not accommodate the roughly 70% of offenders who historically being held pre-trial, even if it started double bunking, which would result in in added transportation costs from the supplemental jail to the courthouse. So the committee was told that the jail to annex hybrid plan would cost about $55 million more than simply building a new facility entirely offsite. And so back then, the committee voted it down. And now there's buzz that we should be revisiting that idea and rerun the numbers because now that the construction costs have escalated so steeply, it might be more cost effective to work with a facility we already have and and incorporate that into our plan. Mike O'Malley is, is one of the proponents of that. County executive candidate Lee Weingart is also pushing for that. So that's kind of the moment we're we're at as everything has sort of been the table's been flipped. <laughs> you know what bothers me about the this whole thing is and there was a quote from Councilman Mike Gallagher that exemplified it that they weren't they weren't thinking about the taxpayer throughout this. The drive seemed to be let's build the Taj Mahal. And he actually says we want all the bells and whistles with no compromises. Nobody buys stuff like that. When you want to buy a house, yeah, you want the nicest house you can get, but your budget range you in, so you may not be able to live on the Lake Erie lakefront. You might have to live a couple of blocks back. And and I get the feeling in reading this that the whole push was bells and whistles instead of can we make it work? The other thing that really bothers me is it seems like the people leading the discussion were the people that were going to profit the most by a massive construction project. And you really want somebody leading this discussion who's thinking about the weary taxpayers. I feel like you got to start over. Yeah. This, this report really gives me no confidence in what's been done before. And I think, you know, what the next county executive gets in, the first thing they should do, one, identify how much money you actually have. And two, really look at, can you make this work without a staggering sum of money? It's 
the building is, is what, 27 years old. Of course you can make something out of it. And, and can you do it in such a way where we're not breaking the taxpayers back? What I think has changed Mike O'Malley's mind is the price of a new jail. They just announced this is now over $700 million. And, and that leaves no money for renovating the courthouse, which is falling apart. So, so they got to pull back and think about what can we do that's within our budget instead of all the bells and whistles with no compromise? What, when do you ever want an elected official to say, we want all the bells and whistles with no compromise? Exactly. No, you're right. It, it, I think so much has transpired in this, in this dramatic uh, debate. Uh, They do, they really do need to start over with new leadership um, throughout, I mean, and, and maybe reconstitute this committee. I, I don't, I, I don't know what the answer is, but they've, they've, they've gone astray <laughs> and they, they yeah, need I, to re, re, uh, you know, evaluate their, their entire thinking about this project. And find somebody to lead that discussion who will not profit one way or the other by the decision. If you're going to get a consultant, have the consultancy end once decisions are made and then go find other people to build or design it. Because I, I just don't trust any of this now. I, I got to tell you, that quote jumped out of that story. It was just, what? All the best. I mean, that's what they did at the Juvenile Justice Center. Remember the stories we were doing about that? That was, that was called the Taj Mahal instead of thinking about the taxpayer, we don't have enough money in the county to do. And they what... also probably built that in the wrong place. Yeah, well, exactly. So so anyway, it's a great story, but you, you really have to read between the lines of what was happening. And now let's go back and let's do it from the taxpayer standpoint, not this ridiculous standpoint of no compromise. Of course, we need compromise. That's what government's supposed to be about. It's today in Ohio. Reporter Jeremy Pelzer has taken a look at some lesser-known first energy officials whose names have come up in the massive HB6 bribery scandal. He says this is good stuff. Who are these people and what has become of them? Well, there's a lot of people. There's 12 of them. I don't know if we can get to them all, but there are no current or former First Energy officials that have been charged criminally yet in the House Bill 6 scandal, although several of them, a dozen, have been named in civil lawsuits by shareholders for failure to provide proper oversight. Uh, Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer looked at defendants in two lawsuits, one filed by the Los Angeles County Employees Retirement Association, or LACERA, and the employee retirement system of the city of St. Louis. And like I said, a dozen uh, First Energy officials are named across these two suits, including former senior vice, and all of them have either been fired or have retired, quote unquote. Uh, Dennis Chack is one of them, the senior vice president of product develop marketing and branding. It's alleged he led a media campaign with false and misleading uh, information on House Bill 6's benefits. He also sold 10,000 shares of First Energy stock for just under a half million dollars back in 2019 when House Bill 6 benefits were kind of coming up. Um, Also quid pro quo deals with uh, Sam Randazzo, the former chairman of PUCA, and the former House Speaker Larry Householder. Uh, Robert Refner, the senior uh, vice president and chief legal officer, he was fired in 2020. They say he facilitated the bailout and prevented detection of the monies. 
Ebony Yaboa Amankwa is the chief, former chief ethics officer and general counsel. She was fired along with Refner and say that she got invoices for payments from Randazzo's companies. And the list goes on. Uh, Stephen Straw, former First Energy CEO, he announced his retirement last month after a marketing team review. Uh, James Pearson, former chief financial officer and vice president of finance, retired in April 2019. They say he wrongly certified quarterly finance reports as accurate. And the list goes on. What this story really does say in a way that I've not seen said anywhere else is that that whole company was rotten. I mean, it wasn't just Chuck Jones leading this massive bribery scandal so that the stockholders got rewarded. It seems like everybody in the upper machinery in this company was involved in doing very bad things. And the company has tried very hard to, to convince us all, we've cleaned house, we've cleaned house. But even the guy that replaced Chuck Jones is already gone, I mean, which has never been explained very well. <laughs> and lobbyists got caught up in this too. There were three lobbyists for First Energy that were terminated in 2021 after working for First Energy for many, many years. One of them, uh, Ty Pine, actually helped write the House Bill 6 legislation. So yeah, that, you know, they were funneling money to dark money groups. They were ignoring audits and payments. So, yeah, there's a definite pattern here. And this is a company that was very closely aligned to Mike DeWine and John Houston. If we had Nan Welly was running a halfway decent campaign, she would be emphasizing that. This isn't a company that operated in a vacuum. It operated closely in contact with our state government and complicit with the PUCO, as we all have discussed. It's a good story by Jeremy, just to give you an idea of how rotten First Energy was leading into this, the, the rise of this scandal. It's today in Ohio. Judge for yourself, the independent group put together by a bunch of bar associations assesses judicial candidates each election to help voters avoid playing the name game and base their choices on actual parameters. This time around, there's an interesting trend involving some of the Republican incumbents on the Ohio Supreme Court. Laura, what is it? Yes. So this judge for yourself, this began in 2002. It's this nonpartisan collection of five bar associations and a statewide prosecutors group that basically look and give ratings after interviews with all the judicial candidates. And you're right. It's so that no one just looks and says, oh, there's a Russo. I'm going to vote for that person because these are at the bottom of your ballot. You, you probably aren't familiar with a lot of the judges. So they fill out the candidates, fill out a questionnaire and then they get and evaluated by these groups. And this year, the three Supreme Court justices, the two two of the races, two Democrats rate better than the Republicans and one they're tied. But for the most part, they're favoring the Democrats in these races. Okay. It's it's look, this is a valued service. They do a they do a good job. They we had had some problems with it a few years back and they spent hours and hours and weeks and weeks coming up with a more thorough plan. And in Cuyahoga County specifically, people always vote the name game. Mm -hmm. Pay attention to this. Pay attention to our endorsements. A lot of effort goes into it. We should elect judges based on merits, not just on whether they have an Irish or Italian name. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it's today in Ohio. I'm going to skip ahead here. We're supposed to have a weekend with days in the high 60s or low 90s, which could qualify this as second summer. 
which is the accepted name today for what we once called Indian summer, a term that many don't realize has been dropped because some consider it disrespectful to Native Americans. We did some research to find out how common second summers are in Cleveland. Laura, they're not as common as I thought. No, and it's not. It is because we're giving them specific parameters at this point. So it can't just be like, that was a nice day in October. So the idea is we're looking at three or more days in the 70s after a freeze. Mm -hmm. So that freeze is really important too. And I'm sorry, but Cleveland Hopkins Airport has not yet recorded a temperature of 32 but, degrees. But wait, wait. But Lisa has had frost. So I'm so, saying we okay, qualify. So she can have one, but like mm-hmm. Hopkins can't have one. I wait mean, it is. We had like sleet and stuff the other day. It I was, know. I know. The, the, I the lowest they've gotten at Hopkins so far is Tuesday. It was 35. But so I agree. Hopkins always seems off on on the weather, but that's the official. Another reason we hate that airport. <laughs> Well, it's further south and west. That's the problem. I mean, the reporting is not even close to the lake at all. So it's going to be different from where we are. Well, and that's true. But I've got to say, I haven't froze. I did get the grapple the other day, uh, but we haven't had a freeze yet. I haven't had frost wait, on wait, my wait, ground. Wait, 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 Is that some Canadian phrase? No, Zachary. Did you not? Did you miss you know, this entire you conversation in the office yesterday? No, I missed that. Okay. So Zachary said he learned this new word, this grapple, because he was like, oh, did we have sleet? And the people at the National Weather Service corrected him and was like, no, that was grapple. So, <laughs> so All right. Let's get back grapple. to the anyway, second summer. So it's only happened. 11 times since 1970 uh, where we get these parameters. The first was 1975 and it's been happening intermittently ever since. But it, I mean, officially, I don't think we're going to do it this year, but this, this weekend is looking awesome and it could be 70s on Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And hey, Lisa's had her frost, so I will count it. Look, and and let's face it, there are no real rules about this. I mean, (laughs) I mean, we all grew up and knew that if you had a period of cool weather and then you had splendid weather, we all called that Indian summer at the time. Uh, I did. I had I should say a whole bunch of people that on my texting account were unaware that that had become an unacceptable term. But Lee Weingart, who's running for county executive, had the best line, made me laugh out loud. He said we should change the name to Guardian Summer, which (laughs) I thought was really witty. I completely agree. I do think we become more sensitive to the word Indian since we changed the baseball team's name. I think we think about it more. Well, no, there's a bunch of etymology for this, and some of it is not disrespectful, but some of it is. And so a couple of years ago, it was just generally accepted. Stop calling it that. Which I don't. Most people missed. the The thing is, we all grew up in thinking that you get a period of warm weather like we're going to have this weekend, and that's what this is. And so maybe it doesn't qualify per the definitions we're talking about, and that's why it seems so rare. But don't you all feel like we pretty much have this every year? Yes. And in 2020, we had eight days, November 4th through the 11th. Um, And so if you remember that, I do remember we put on the front page of the Plain Dealer, um, it's beginning to look a lot like November. And it was like me on a paddleboard out in Lake Erie at the beginning of November. So that was that's a pretty long stretch for pretty late in the year. Well, I hope everybody listening to this podcast gets out, enjoys what is supposed to be spectacular weather. It's today in Ohio. That does it for a week of discussions on the news. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Come back Monday. We got a lot more stuff coming this weekend that we will be talking about. 